Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been impacted by and overcome personal adversities, including your host. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep and hopeful look into the experiences related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of personal struggle. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real areas of life that all of us face. You will hear wisdom from people who fought to persevere through pain, circumstances, and are doing the work to recover. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to um, the podcast. It's been a minute. We have all been busy with seasons changing. Um, I have had some situations come up in our life. We actually had two unexpected painful deaths in the family. I was right after in a car wreck and just one thing after another like that. And then we've all been hit with the circumstances of the coronavirus. So it's definitely been a twilight zone season of busy and hectic and regrouping and trying to figure it out. So that said, I'm happy to be recording again. And today's conversation is with someone I have connected with over social media, which is something I love to do when you meet like-minded people who share similar experiences online, and it's positive, not negative. Um, She's someone who gets it when it comes to what it's like to have a family member struggling, whether it's with mental health, emotional health, addiction, alcoholism, or what have you. Kylie is her name, and she generously shares her story of someone being deeply affected by addiction with more than one family member, like many of us. As I have said, she gets it. She is open about it, and we need more like her. People who share their experience, they help us all to find comfort in the fact that we're not alone. We don't have to isolate and be afraid or ashamed or bear the burden alone. There are many of us. As she says on her webpage, Everyone wants to feel like they relate to someone. Unless you have lived this life or suffered a loss of this magnitude, you won't understand it. And I would have to say that is really speaking my language, or our language, I should say, because it's so true, which is why support is life-saving, in my opinion. Kylie is a fellow animal lover, and her middle name is Anne with an E, which makes me feel less alone as well. With that said, I will let Kylie share her personal experience herself. So thank you so much for coming on and welcome, Kylie. Well, thank you. (laughs) And I love your accent. So if you wouldn't mind, just I know you have a website (laughs) and we'll um, get to all of that about being an affected family member. I always say I've never been addicted to a substance or a chemical, but I've been obsessed and addicted to people who were. So if you wouldn't mind just getting into your story and giving us kind of a brief summary of how it's been and where you are now. Okay. Well, thanks again for uh, having me on here. And I'm so glad, I'm sorry about your, your losses, first of all. And I appreciate you taking the time to uh, facilitate this little meeting with me. And I'm glad to hear you're okay after your car accident also. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but, it's been um, a crazy time, but I think I have a feeling that you can relate. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I I totally agree with that about the, um, like you've never been addicted to a substance. Like that is totally my, uh, my experience also. Um, I can't say that I've, you know, I've been in it. I've lived in it, you know, it was in my household all day, every day. I had a mother who was addicted to prescription pills and ultimately succumbed to that, uh, 12 years ago. 
Um, yeah. But she, uh, you know, I was addicted to fixing everything and everybody and making sure that everything stayed kosher, you know, like I needed to, I had three younger siblings and step siblings. So I was addicted to, to that chaos, that lifestyle, that like, that was just where I was comfortable. And as I was saying, I was addicted to, um, to fixing the situation and making sure that, you know, I was the caretaker and chaos was my, uh, my comfort zone. You know, you would think that, you know, people want to get away from that and you, you do like in your mind you do, but you're just, that's where you're comfortable and like it or not, that's, that's the lifestyle I was drawn to, even though I didn't use the chemicals myself. We do become comfortable with that. And it's not like you're comfortable in, a, in the sense that you like it. It's that it's what you're used to. And this strange exactly. calm seems to come over you when things are in crisis. It's like you're at your best. I heard that that's a really good description of being codependent or somebody who's enmeshed is when you find yourself doing your best work in times of extreme pressure and crisis. Exactly. That was me all the way. Um, I actually just really started working on my own codependency and what I needed to do for my end of recovery. And I didn't realize just how sick I was. Right. No, I don't think we do because I think we're seeing the, the choices and the behavior of what appears to be bad, unhealthy, toxic, and so on. And we think we're the responsible ones that we're just not doing that. So we don't realize how sick we are. Exactly. Exactly. And my mother had me very young. So our relationship was more of a sibling than a mother daughter to begin with. And once her use ramped up, it turned into a very, um, like I was the parent and she was the child. Like we never had, we never had a, a normal relationship or what I would consider to be normal anyway. And drugs just, you know, fed into that. Well, I can, I can say I can definitely relate. And I know the impact it's lifelong of having an unhealthy or unhealth, unhappy relationship with a, with a mom. I, I, I can honor my mom. I have compassion for her. I even see her from time to time, but we've never had a, a proper mother-daughter relationship. And it took a lot of years to kind of put the pieces back together and become a strong person who didn't live a life daily affected by that. I was right. going to ask also, when you I, were, I was understand. it when you were young or was it um, once things got kind of crazy and chaotic that you realized things were not okay or quote normal? It really wasn't until I had my first child, which I did have my first child young. I was 18, going on 19. Um, she was still alive. She, she passed away three months after my son was born. So it wasn't until I was pregnant for my son and, you know, I started seeing, it was like deja vu in my own relationship with his father when I realized like, whoa, history is repeating itself here. And I don't want this, like, this is not normal. And like, that's what forced me to look at it in a different light was bringing a child into that chaos. And that's, is that the husband you're with now? No, ma'am. Okay. That's right. Cause I saw, uh, saw some of that on your webpage. And I think it's interesting as well that those things do repeat until you deal with the shadow work or it's called in some therapeutic settings schema work where you are subconsciously mm -hmm. making the same choices. You'll find yourself in work settings or in friendships or relationships saying, this is just like my mom, or this is just like how my brother talked to me or treated me, or I used to do this for my dad. 
And it's because we just return to those patterns over and over and over until we are kind of awakened to the truth and dig in and do the work to heal that pattern. Exactly. And I mean, I was, I saw it and I was like, I was able to acknowledge it, but I wasn't able to really grasp it in its entirety until probably the last two to three years as to how, how deep those roots really run. Like my mom passed away. Like I said, my son was three months old and our our relationship at that point was toxic. I mean, she had, uh, she had gotten to a car wreck years, a few years before that. And that's really where her prescription pill addiction picked up but she had you know played her part in the um you know like the the speed I guess you would say like the the hippie days the marijuana the uh you know then they switched that over to the acid and the speed and the board you know she did all that when she was a little younger but it's like she was able to break away from that and we actually made a move and she had got her life back on track and then once she got into that wreck it was just all downhill from there and um it just really I didn't realize just how far down it brought our entire family and the the level of dysfunction that came with that. Was she married to your dad or did she have more than one? Like, did you have stepdads and things like that? Yes. Uh, um, My biological father, I really didn't know. Um, She was married to my younger sister's father and their, their relationship was abusive and toxic partly I think largely in part to the um to the drugs and the pills however it didn't erase the the dysfunction the you know what came with it and the the long-term after effects that came with all of that did you end up finding out later maybe that she had experienced trauma or something in her upbringing which might have led her down that road I did I did um I can remember her telling me things you know, towards the end of her life when she was, but she was always, you know, high and on something. So it was like, I kind of just dismissed her. And, um, like I said, about two years ago, um, I was actually going through the adoption process with my oldest son and just kind of seeing that, um, my, my, my current husband, we've been together for 10 years. He adopted my son and, um, cause his father is an active addiction still. So, um, you know, we've, we've kind of made some big changes and that, and it, well, as we were going through that, I, it's like, I was looking at myself in this child and I started, you know, I needed to deal with all of this and I didn't know how to get it all out. So I just started writing and I wrote a book and as I was researching, you know, things to make sure that my memory kind of self-checking myself, you know, spot checking myself to make sure that I am speaking the truth and checking my own truth. Um, cause that is, that can be, your memories are even subjective. And mm-hmm. so I want to make sure that I'm telling it and giving everyone the, um, the integrity they deserve, no matter what choices they made. And, um, I found out through that research that my mother also had experienced trauma. She had experienced sexual abuse as a child that she never told anybody. And it makes me wonder, you know, now if maybe that was a, a trigger for her and maybe that's how she dealt with things. And of course, that coincides with some of the things she shared with me at the end of her life. But I thought she was just talking out of her head, honestly. Do you, did she did she know she was addicted, or did she kind of hide it? Oh, she it she it? absolutely knew it. Um, towards the end, she absolutely knew it. She justified it till the very last days. Um, I always felt felt severe guilt because I 
like I said, I didn't, I have my son now when I had my child, I didn't want my son around that. And so I kind of gave her an ultimatum. Like I had her kicked out of the hospital when I had my son because she was high. And, uh, um, I gave her an ultimatum. It's either you get clean or you stay away. And so she went home and tried to sober up on her own. And she called me that morning. She had actually had her husband at the time lock her pills in a lockbox. And uh, she's like, I'm clean, I'm clean. And within an hour after we got into an argument on the phone about it, because I thought she was lying, she had a seizure. So she tried to Aww. clean up on her own is what happened. And it, it, she had a seizure causing her to go without oxygen for too long. Wow. You know, I think that when we first come into the situation or, or come into realization of what we're dealing with, it's such an issue of good or bad or right or wrong that we don't realize until I started to realize the disorder that it caused in the brain and learn about things like that. And especially if no one has listened to any of Dr. Nicole Labor's videos about it, I encourage yes. you to because you begin to understand the science behind what actually goes on with our dopamine and reward system and things like that. Before I understood things like that Absolutely. or understood my mom's own, she had had some intensely traumatic experiences as a child. I would get so frustrated and judgmental and I had zero compassion. And on this side of it, it's like, I understand the amount of suffering. I don't look at decisions or behavior without consequences. And I don't think that people should not be held accountable because accountability provides rails to direct people mm -hmm. toward better choices. It's, it's absolutely life-saving sometimes, but without understanding or compassion, we really miss the mark of, of kind of getting the whole picture that it's not just, you know, accountability or answer for your decisions. There's, there's a big level of kindness and compassion that we have to extend. And I think coming to understand their suffering, whether it was prior or in the midst of their addiction, it's real and it's valid and it's, it's profoundly intense. It is. It, it really is. And at the time, I was very um, uneducated towards addiction in a whole. Like, that was just taboo, and we that wasn't spoken about. I mean, this, this was medication prescribed by a doctor, and it's just, you know, it was swept under the rug. Like, it wasn't looked at. Yet, now it's a big deal with the opioid crisis we're into now. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation in almost every household. But at the, that time, 12 years ago, it was not, you know, spoken about in that way. And so I understood it to be as you're making this choice, you're purposely choosing to act this way and put us all through these things because with, you know, being high and, and addiction and, and that, that you make bad decisions based on what you, what you need to do to keep your, let me say that again. You can hurt the people you love whenever you're using like that to feed that monster because that's what it is. It truly changes everything about you. Like she was not, the woman that passed away was not my mother. And it took me a long time to understand that and wrap my mind around it. I mean, it just takes over. And you know, I always say, I, I really love me some addicts because I've been surrounded by them my whole life and I have found them to be the most sensitive, charismatic, funny, creative people that you want to be around. They're not just reject type of the zombie they people. Are. You, you, you know, a lot of times society sees them at their worst, but they don't see the intense trauma and suffering or injury or whatever that led them down this path and that it eventually exactly. just completely took over. And I think one reason it takes over and that people don't get well is due to the shaming and the lack of compassion. 
Absolutely. There was, there's one Absolutely. part in, in your um, about section of your webpage, which is the Addicts Ripple, and I'll have you give all of that at the end here, but um, it talked about some of your um, your symptoms, which I always think, you know, we talk about emotional sobriety in some of the recovery groups I'm in on the family member side of the house. You know, we're the ones that are not, you know, per se using chemicals. We're going through it sober. However, we're just as crazy, if not crazier. And some of the things that we have are symptomatic of being in the midst of dysfunction or things yeah, like that. Yeah, I think know. I'm a little crazier. <laughs> yeah, like there's ACOA or things like that. The effects of, of being in a dysfunctional, emotionally immature, messed up household, whether no matter what the addiction or dysfunction was, but you talk about the overthinking things and connecting a dots con constantly and analyzing everything as being the ripple effect. And I was just wondering if you could give maybe some examples of that or maybe how it became dysfunction in friendships for you or in relationships, how you caught those behaviors showing up again. Okay. Um, well, like for instance, uh, whenever I got with my oldest son's father, um, I wanted so badly to, to think, think that he was not, and he was, he was a different person. And I, I did meet the, you know, I fell for the person that was under the addiction, but it was still there. It was starting. So it's like, I looked at it as I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to, I'm going to just, you know, smooth all this over and I'm going to reap the rewards. And I was so wrong. I did nothing but, um, enable his addiction is what I did. I put out all his little fires. Um, I analyzed everything. And then even when I got out of that relationship and tried to move on with my life, I brought those same uh, coping skills into this marriage that I'm in now. I've been with this man for 10 years and I feel like just the last two to three years, we've made huge strides or I have made huge strides in understanding myself because I mean, like I couldn't even have an, a disagreement because to me, a disagreement was I'm screaming and hollering and throwing stuff. At, and he's like, whoa, I love you. Like, stop. Like he want to just stop right there. And I'm like, what are you doing? It was like, you don't know how to live life. No. Because that's all you know. And it, it really hit me like a curveball. Like, whoa, <laughs> what's wrong with you? And I'm like, looking at him like, you going to kill me or something? When am I sleep? Like, people are not this calm. <laughs> like, you must be thinking of something else. So, I mean, it's just, I totally over would overthink every little thing. Like, if there was a disagreement and he was quiet, I'm like, well, what's he going to do later? Like, I would wait for the other shoe to drop all the time. And he's not that type of person, you know? And just things like that, that I just was surprised. And like connect, like connecting the dots in my own behavior. Like I, I noticed little triggers, you know, in myself, like that I didn't even realize were a thing. For instance, like, um, when I'm sick, you know, if, if I get sick and I, I need to, to throw up or something, I have extreme anxiety just out of nowhere. Like I feel like I'm going to die and I freak out and I don't want to be alone. And I mean, I'm 31 years old and it wasn't until I started writing my book that I figured out where that came from. And I'm like, whoa, that was a deep seated subconscious thing. You know, I can remember being a child and being sick and my mother was high and locked in her bedroom. So I was sick alone um, and I didn't even real I didn't even connect those dots until I started writing and, and really seeing like, wow, you know, those, those things do, there is a ripple effect. It really follows you. I mean, I think it bleeds into everything. I remember um, 
like I would deny that I would be sick and go to work anyway. And, and I had in the course of my kind of what my process has been called untangling, kind of untangling myself and my behaviors from the dysfunction I came from. I had a therapist call it that. So I've just loved it. But when I was mm-hmm. in the early days of it, I remember getting really sick, like a stomach flu, throwing up and all of that. And I just kind of lost my mind over it and was depressed and crying over being sick. And I remember this therapist friend that had come along into my life had said, you know, that's a really, um, that's, that's a pattern some codependent people will have when they've had so much intense pressure and stress and they carry all of this strength for so long and hold it in and they just try to go about doing the right thing and bearing it. And then a sickness will come along because your body can't take it anymore and they just fall apart. And she was like, that's probably just, you know, what's happening here is now it's your time to just, your body's saying, stop, you need to fall apart for a while. That was kind of a relief for me. Yeah, I I really believe that's what happened. I mean, you could call it a... um call it an exorcism you could call it a nervous breakdown I don't know what you'd want to call it but it felt like I was dying like I went to doctors and I was like you're gonna send me to specialists like I know I'm dying like the way off my body felt it was just not right and um you know all these tests and all this stuff and they were like you're you have anxiety I was like I'm not crazy I do not have anxiety and it took a lot of digging for me to understand what anxiety was and just like you said that was being in high stressful situations for so long and like you said earlier you know, that's where people like I thrive, you know, a codependent person, the way I was, I could get things done and I could handle it. And it's like, I I lived that way for so long. And now my life is in a different place. And, you know, I have my own family and I, I don't have all that anymore. And it's like, right when my life is good, (laughs) my body's like, whoa, hey girl, we got some stuff in here we need to talk about. And I really had to dig deep and figure out what was going on and what was making me feel that way. It was always helpful to me when um, the, the kind of mentor that came along into my life would always say, you know, these problems aren't just coming so that you'll have a life of problems. These things are purging themselves out of your life. So if they're coming to your view, oh, I, like that. It, I loved it too, because it put a whole new spin on it. And I didn't look at myself as a victim or as helpless right. or like it was unending. It was like, oh, okay, there's a purpose to all of this. Now I can get excited and get on board for the fact right. that there's a good outcome after this. So that helped me a lot, but I remember vacillating between two thoughts and it was either that I was crazy or I was the responsible one. And I remember saying, what if I end up being just like this or just like, you know, this behavior in in my Mm -hmm. upbringing? And she would say, people who are, you know, quote, crazy, aren't asking that question. They just are doing the behavior. And then I would swing all the way to the other side and think that I was the only one that wasn't sick because I was being responsible and I was harassing and nagging about these. I had all the answers, right? Yeah. And there's just no balance or peace in either direction. You're just a pinball. Exactly. That's exactly where I was like to the point where I was so petrified to end up to have the same fate as my mother. I've struggled with mental health since I was a young child. And I mean, you can say it's genetic. I mean, you can look it up this way or that way, but there's so many confounding variables that uh, play into that. And I refused for a long time to even take my depression medication because I was like, what if that's just the start? Like, you know, now I'm going to need something else and something else and something else. And I mean, I was making my whole family crazy because I was just overthinking that I mean, I think therapy is a wonderful thing and I definitely 
got a lot from that, but some people do need a, a change in their the chemicals in their brain. And I'm one of them. And I will gladly take my medicine every day now because I was not in a good place. No. Yeah. And you know, it's whatever it takes. That's what I was going to say as well. For me, recovering from the ripple effects, as you call it, of addiction and trauma and dysfunction and all of that in my upbringing. I mean, we had every kind of mess you can imagine. Poverty, constant moving, screaming, yelling arguments, over-obsessive, condemning, crazy religious doctrine that was not of any kind of hopeful, loving mm-hmm. kind. I mean, just we had, it, we had a big potpourri of mess. And so you release right. somebody like that into the world as a teenager, as a young adult, I don't know who would expect them to have it all together. I just couldn't. And one of the, um, you know, some of the ripple effects for me in my adult life, I had to heal one at a time and I developed what I call the patchwork process. So some of it's been therapy. Some of it's been one-on-one mentoring. Some of it's been journaling. Some of I've used DBT. I went through a psychoanalysis where I went back through everything and kind of brought it all forward and analyzed it in a positive regard you know, and meeting with people in the right. rooms. I love support group rooms. I love I love that too. Oh, I used to think, oh, it's everybody feeling sorry for themselves or crying. It's nothing like that. It is a place where people are tough and brave and strong. And that's where I believe you can heal if you get in a healthy one. So with, you know, and some people need medication. For me, I have this stubbornness. If I, you know, if I need something, I'm not a fool. I'm going to go to the doctor or the hospital or whatever, but I have a stubbornness that I will first go to nature and I will even swallow garlic before taking antibiotics because I come from (laughs) a family that pills are the answer for everything. So that said, you know, if if you need them, you need them. So I'm curious also, you know, what has your patchwork process been? Because there's nothing one size fits all. And what, you know, your method of today is maybe not what next Tuesday's need is going to be. So it's, it's like a process that's put together custom for each of us. And it has a lot of components. So I would love if you'd share yours. Well, my, my process has been, um, writing, writing has been a big thing for me. Um, writing and I read, I read a whole lot. So so any self-help literature I can put my hands on, I'm going to read it. Melody Beattie's all her codependent writings, you know, all her works. I have read that back to front, front to back and side to side, and I'll read it over and over. Exercise is a big thing. Um, I have to, it's like if my mind is just racing, 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 if I can exhaust my body, then I can calm my mind. And that's, it's a strange dynamic, but it works for me. And it's like, I can think through a lot of things at that time, you know? Yeah. And definitely the support groups and Al-Anon. You have great animals. (laughs) Yes. Uh, My husband is an animal lover. So we have chickens, ducks. Uh, We have recently got a horse. We have a goat couple dogs. <laughs> so, you know, we're always kind of got, got some kind of little project going on and that that's helpful also, but it can also be the opposite if I let it. Cause there are times when I let myself get so into all these little projects. It's like, if I, if I keep myself busy, then I don't have to deal. <laughs> so yeah, there's a it, fine line there. I think then it kind of becomes a burden. Like I can get it into a burden with self-care if I don't think I got Absolutely. certain things in that day. And then it becomes, it's the, the cure is not supposed to become more of a problem than the problem. Right, right. Yes. And that, that comes with it with me sometimes too. I have to definitely check myself because I don't know if that's just a, a, a characteristic of, people like, like me, you know, codependent and coming from that type of a family dynamic, but I can definitely get over the top and obsessive and that becomes a problem. Right. 
Yeah, me too. And then I'll get like, find myself swinging the other way. So it's like a daily process. Um, I was going to ask you also, you know, having the mom issue, um, it's taken me a lot of time, a lot of years. I went through kind of every phase of it that you go through, like mourning that or trying to force it to happen or feeling sorry for myself or, but, um, I've, I've come to a place of a lot of healing and peace in the last decade. So I don't have those moments where if something goes wrong, I fall into a puddle and think you'd be a nice time to have a mom to call, you know, like I don't struggle with that mm-hmm. anymore. And I have a very kind, positive relationship with her now, which I think is as healthy as it's going to be. That's and amazing. Supposed to be right. So I was just wondering, um, one of my learning processes um, as a result of having a mom-daughter relationship like this is I didn't struggle so much in, in romantic relationships or, or choose, you know, tons of toxic partners or things like that. I have had one toxic friendship after another with females who I would um, be betrayed by so intensely that it would happen over and over and I would just try to be better or fix it or feel terrible about it or fight viciously against it or nothing kind of healed it. And then I would find myself in the next one after that. And it'd be the same situation where somebody seemed kind of like a fake nurturer, so to speak, Mm -hmm. seemed gushy and loving and warm and fun and charismatic, but they were really quite sick and venomous and jealous of, of, you know, not just me for whatever reason. And I always would say, I don't have anything to be jealous of. I always think everyone is better than me. But a therapist friend of mine had said, when somebody's a jealous person, you know, they don't just get jealous from time to time. They live in a state of jealousy. So it doesn't matter what you have. If it's a lot or a little, they want it and they don't want you to have it. And they're comparing themselves and competing against it. They're mad about it. And I would choose those types of friendships that had a face like somebody fun and friendly and gushy and stuff like that. And I got burnt. I mean, there's been over the succession of years, of course, um, probably four or five that I, each situation I would end up more and more devoured and stabbed in the back and one mess after another. And until it finally got healed. And now it's funny when you're on the other side of it, you're like, Oh my goodness, I would see that from 10 miles away. It would never, mm-hmm. never happen now. So I was just curious if you'd had situations as a result of the mom-daughter relationship you've had with female relationships? I definitely did. Um, When I was younger, you know, high school and right, you know, right out of high school, I had a lot of relationships where it was a lot of, a lot of take, you know, like I would give and they would take and it wasn't really reciprocated, you know, like it was the same type of situation really as I had with my romantic relationships, just that I wanted to come in and and fix everything. And, and then I would give, give, give. And then you get to a point where it's like, wow, they, all they do is take from me. Like nobody's there. So I've learned over the years, like if I feel myself putting out so much effort and I'm still feeling uneasy about it, that that's not healthy. And that that's very indicative, indicative. Is that how you say that? (laughs) (laughs) of what I felt with my mother. And when it, when it makes me kind when, it, when I feel like a mirror image of that, you know, then I know that I need to do some more work on myself because I'm slipping back into that. So my circle has really gotten smaller. I found for myself, it's easier for me to um, have a few good quality friends because when my circle gets larger, I tend to get laxed and yeah, I, I, I attract I am attracted to those, those types of relationships. And I really, I have to force myself to go where I'm not comfortable. And it always ends up working out for me if I'm not comfortable. (laughs) It's strange, but 
I have to go where it's not comfortable for growth because growth is not comfortable. I feel like I always have to bring it back to introspection and what is my part in this. And even though there's been times that it's been clear deception and betrayal and just viciousness that's at an immature level, you know, from an adult that I can't comprehend because I've had a couple situations like that that just shocked my life. Um, I still have to come back to introspection and think, how'd I get here? What did I ignore? What did I make excuses for? What did I think I could fix? Or what was I even self-righteous about? There was something dysfunctional in me that allowed me to come into this situation where I even could be devoured like I was. Right, right. That's always helpful because when you come back to what you can control and clean up and you clean up your side of the street, there's, that's a lot more hopeful than if you're trying to explain yourself or prove your point and make that other person mm-hmm. see it or admit it. That's just never going to happen. You stay sick right. out in that realm. Right. So um, do you, uh, you said that your ex-husband, he's currently in active use. Is, yes. is he ever present or do you have any encounters with him? Not anymore. Um, it's been about six years now. He has not had any contact with our son. Um, we separated when my son was just over a year old. Oh. And uh, he's 12 now. And, um, we know, we tried the co-parenting thing in the beginning. And I will not uh, play the victim card here. You know, I did for a long time. Like, oh, he did this to us and he did that to us. But in reality, it was a, it was a family unit that was not right due to both of our circumstances and his addiction was a huge part of that. And, um, you know, it got to the point where I had to help, you know, shelter my child from possible injuries or even, you know, even worse because he was so careless with his, with the things he was doing. But uh, we did try that for a long time, the co the uh, co-parenting and it just, it didn't work. So I did ask for sole custody and he doesn't, you know, his addiction has taken him to a place where he's not even attempting to be present. So he actually allowed my husband to adopt our son. And it was a very, um, you, well, I thought that's what I wanted. And it is, it is what I wanted. My son has only really known my husband as a father, but it was very, it was a very strange, uh, dynamic and mixed feelings about it because it's almost like it brought me back to my own childhood. Like why is my child not good enough for you to fight for sobriety? Like I really had to check myself with that and to, you know, to remember and research and really read into the things that I've learned that, you know, it's not, it's not a choice. I mean, it it starts as a choice, but it's no longer a choice when you you get to this point and it it takes a lot of work and a lot of, um, a lot of help. It's doable. It takes a long time to kind of awaken to what you're dealing with too. I mean, you don't learn how to handle it or even what's going on overnight. There's a lot of stuff that's intuitive and you got to be educated and it's a process. So I will say what was very helpful for, um, for my son and our situation is, and I would suggest this to anyone who is trying to co-parent or, you know, with, with someone in active addiction is I documented everything. I have a binder where every visit I wrote about it, whether it was good, whether it was bad, uh, text messages, I screenshotted them, printed them, put them in this binder. And I, my, my thinking behind that was two, two things. If I ever need to take him back to court for sole custody, which I eventually did have to do, then I have my, my proof, what I need. I kept newspaper clippings from arrests, you know, stuff like that. And my son was also very young. And 
you know, when they're little, you don't need to, you know, I didn't want to tell my son, oh, your daddy was arrested last week, or he did this, or he did that, you know, or we got physical at this, this visit, you know, but it all needed to be documented in a way that was age appropriate and the truth without nobody's feelings in it. Like not my feelings, not his feelings and not my opinions, but just the truth. So that way my child will know that, you know, his, his dad, we tried and this is, this was the outcome when you're, when he's old enough to comprehend that. And that was very, uh, very helpful in my opinion for our situation. Oh yeah. That's really smart. My, that's one thing that I've always told my son when he's, he had a work conflict a couple years ago. And I remember saying, when you present things, always present them. And when you're, you know, trying to state something in a fact, in a professional manner, say the facts not the feelings because we tend right. to just present the feelings and nobody's listening to that when you're kind of trying to, to get to the bottom of truth. You know, right. the feelings right. are kind of secondary. So always state, you know, the facts of the situation in a real calm, reasonable way. You don't want to lose your mind when you're trying to present the truth. Right. You know, one of the things I had learned early on is that when you have situations where someone's in active addiction and it escalates to the point that maybe you have police presence there, um, by the time the police gets there, when they arrive, the person who has called and is probably um, taken the brunt of a lot of the behavior is a, a sobbing, shouting mess. And they feel safe to be at that point, And they're at a fed up point. And then the person who's kind of been demonstrating the adversarial behavior, they tend to be calm and more, you know, reasonable. And so it's hard for the people in positions of authority to discern who's telling the truth here, who's out of control or not. So if you state things in a really reasonable, calm, factual manner, even if they're terribly upsetting, you're going to get a lot further than if you're tearing your hair out because the situation is that bad. Right. I know. We've had a couple of those. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. So um, I love hearing your story and I want to hear about your website so I can direct people there because it is to a place of safety and hope and I think a resting place for anyone who is on the sidelines of someone's addiction or dysfunctional behavior to just find like-minded people and find encouragement and hope and peace and all of that. So if you could tell us your website and the, and the details of all the things that you have out, including your book, that would be great. Awesome. Okay, so uh, my website is www.addictsplural, A-D-D-I-C-T-S, ripple.com. Um, on my website, I kind of blog about things that I've kind of been dealing with, or um, I've, I've actually used it to share pieces of my book as I'm writing it. But I've also um, set it up to where, because I plan to have an app built, because I, 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 like, as you said, I truly thrive and grow from community and just being able to connect with people who have been through similar experiences. That's been way more healing for me than probably any book I've read. But um, I have a, where you can sign up and there's actually like a, a private uh, group in there and there's different little chat rooms and, you know, it hasn't really been used because I guess I just, I really haven't promoted it and I've been spread so, so thin, but I plan to have an app built because I love the, um, the idea of that to be able to just have it there. And there's so many other options available. I think like Al-Anon, Nor-Anon, Coda, all that is amazing. But I feel like some people just don't feel like they fit. And I know I was one of those people. Like I can go to a meeting one day and I feel like I'm fitting great. And I can go to another one and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not me. This is not what I need right now. So I just wanted to create a safe, quiet, 
laid back atmosphere for people to just congregate and lean on each other as they need it. And that's my hope for what it's going to be used for. Well, I love that. And I will send that out on my pages as well. And then what's the name of your book? Um, I'm, I kind of have a working title. I'm working with an editor, so I'm not sure if I, I'm set on it just yet because it's not done. Like my rough draft is done. I'm going through all the editing phases, but I'm thinking it's going to be Murky Depths and uh, Wading Through the Addict's Ripple Effect. It's going to be the subtitle. Oh, that's good. And if you sign up on my website, you can. I'll be sending out an email list to let people know when it's ready and when it's out and all that good stuff. So well, it's you- just kind of my own experience and through trauma and addiction and family dysfunction and growth and all the good stuff that comes after. I definitely love and admire the fact that you are, you have definitely done the work and it's, you know, we, it's a lifelong thing. We don't just reach a finish line, but when you've hit a threshold where you're at peace with everything enough to be able to share and talk about it and give hope to others, I feel like you've done the majority of it. And I respect anyone that opens up because I know what it's like to go through it alone when you feel like you are an absolute alien in a foreign land and you're the only one dealing with it. I mean, it's the worst. And so any, for anybody that comes forward, it is, it's, it's work, but it's worth it. It is work and not everybody has to, and that's okay. But for those who do and are kind of leading this pilgrimage of heal yourself, do the work and then tell others they can be okay. It's, there's going to be effects from a dysfunctional family, whether it's one family member or an entire upbringing, but you can heal and you can end up having a life that is thriving and better for it. So anybody who gives that message has my utmost respect. Right. And I think a lot of people, you know, people are quick to play the victim card. I know I was, and I think it's just important for people to understand that, that trauma can be so much less than like, an experience that was traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you. Like I'm sure when my kids are grown, they're going to be sitting in the therapist office somewhere and they're going to be telling them my mom did X, Y, and Z. And I'm not even going to remember that, but it's going to have impacted, you know, there are things that are going to impact others. And you know, we, everyone experiences trauma. Every family has some level of dysfunction, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, It may not be as severe as others. Like you may not have, you know, your parents slinging pills out the front door and, and, you know, things like that, but you may experience divorce. You may experience, I mean, you will experience death. You know, you will go through Mm -hmm. things and that's traumatic and and it it takes work to deal with and it does continue on to the next generation. Well, we definitely like to end on hope and your recovery gives information and hope, I believe, to families. So if there's any thoughts you might share with someone who's presently struggling on the sidelines of an addicted family member, that would be awesome. Um, I, I would say that you don't have to conform to um, a set of rules that like society puts out. You know, they'll say, oh, wait, they have to hit rock bottom. So don't feed them and don't close them. Or You know, you hear different things. And I think for me, it's just to be who you can be and love how you love and, and do what you can live with. Because people do not have to be at rock bottom to, to find sobriety and to find their recovery and just to continue to be open-minded because while you're protecting yourself of course that's first the number one that you do have to protect yourself but that there is you're not alone and there's so many people going through the same thing that is the truth 
and I will send your book and all your links out. Is there any way um, our listeners can get in touch with you if they'd like to ask questions or anything like that? Um, email, Instagram, websites, anything like that that you could share? Yes, sure. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is all Addicts Ripple. Um, it's just at Addicts Ripple. And um, you can connect with me through there or through my website. There's a, a contact form on my website. So Perfect. I'd be happy to talk with anybody. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming on. I'll send it all out. And I would just encourage you to keep doing what you're doing and, and doing your own recovery alongside speaking it out to others because it's people like you that are turning this epidemic around and helping others realize I have hope. So with that said, I really appreciate, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and the work you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. And I hope I didn't sound like I was rambling. I had so many ideas in my head. <laughs> no, <laughs> so you have been wonderful. So, so thanks so much. And until next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found in Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Unhooked.